Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I am joined by visionary director Andrew Dominic. I was so excited to talk to Andrew. I truly believe he's a visionary filmmaker. I think he deserves more fucking respect. But I think that's coming with Blonde, his Marilyn Monroe biopic. We talk about that. We talk about his first film, Chopper, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary and has a re-release. He made the incredible The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Masterpiece, all caps, beautiful film. Slept on, shut the fuck up, it's not slow. Just fall into its dream spell. It's like a beautiful ambient western. And I got to talk to him about the train sequence. If you know the film, the train sequence. I also spoke to him about his new documentary, This Much I Know To Be True. This is his second portrait of Nick Cave. And just to fill you in, we start off talking about it. There's, so let me give you some context. There's the opening of the film. Nick makes a joke that he's become a ceramicist and he's ditched music and he's just into sculpting and pottery and whatnot. And then they go into a studio and he pulls out these 18 fucking figures of a devil that he's made, taking the devil through his life stage by stage. Like, the devil's a child, the devil is a young man, the devil married. And it's so fucking chilling and intense. It's just incredible. It's like a fucking horror movie in 10 sculptures, in 10 bits of porcelain. So that's what we're talking about. It's worth going to see the movie just for that alone. Andrew is very intense, as you will feel, but it's a great conversation. Real privilege to talk to a true visionary filmmaker. This is me and Andrew Dominic. Thank you for taking the time to talk. No worries. Where are you? I'm in London. Oh. You California? Sunny California, my friend. Nice. I just watched This Much I Know To Be True. Oh, really? I got sent a screener. I thought it was so great. Oh, good. Good, 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 good. I'm glad you liked it. Did it move you? Absolutely. I was just going to say yeah. that I think um, as Nick gets older, there's more... He's got a richer voice, I think, and he's, there's a real vulnerability coming through in those recent records. That yeah. I think yeah. it's so beautiful, especially the opening, um, is it Spinning Song? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, when he closes his eyes singing I Love You over and over, it's... Yeah. Yeah, truly beautiful. It's so beautiful. And what an opening with those 18 figurines, the story of a devil. Yeah. Fucking yeah, hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think it's a testament to Nick's storytelling. It just gets heavier and deeper with every figure. Yeah, totally. 
totally. It was amazing. I mean, I just walked into his house and he showed us and got off the plane and walked in the door and he showed me the, he basically did what he does in the movie. And I was like, oh, okay, that's going to be in the film. What made you come back to do another documentary portrait of Nick? Just he asked me to. Okay. You know, I mean, these films are not uh, these films are not really, um, you know, career decisions. Do you know what I mean, or a- a- anything like that? It's basically my friend's son died, and he asked me to help. You know, and it was incredibly liberating to make a movie where the movie's not that important. You know, and uh, in fact, you don't even know what you're doing. You're just sort of shooting stuff, and you're going to sort it out later, kind of thing. Um. Extremely liberating because you usually take your film very seriously, mm-hmm. you know, um, and to sort of not uh, helps the film. You, you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely, yeah. They're more like acts of friendship than acts of movie making, right? Yeah, I think that's the great thing with true documentary filmmaking is just you get what you get or you capture what what you capture, and yeah, they just seem like beautiful portraits more than you know, a typical rock doc per se. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, it's about what's going going on with him. At that moment, yeah. Yeah. We had a, I had a funny situation. I, I'm a film programmer also, and we invited Warren over to screen his Dirty Free documentary. I don't know if you've seen that. You know what, I've got it here, but I don't have a, I don't have a multi-zone player to play it on. I really would love to see it because I love the Dirty Free. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. It's a great, great documentary. They did a really good job. But we met Warren just at the hotel. Yeah. And he pulled me aside and, and said, is a doc any good? And I was like, how have you not, have you not seen it? And he's like, oh, I just didn't bother to watch it. No, he hadn't seen it. But, uh, and then he introduced it and I said to him, he was just leaving the stage and I said, Warren, we've got, we've got a front row couch right there. You know, old caves there and a few friends. And he just shouted, no, if it's shit, I want to leave. Yeah. And so he just went right to the back where we had these, it was completely sold out. So we laid out just a bunch of stools at the back, but did warn you like, yeah, you're going to have to sit on a rickety bar stool if you want to come in, but the choice is yours. Yeah. And so Warren just watched the whole film from a really rickety bar stool at the back of a screening, but. He did like it. He was moved to see why well, I suppose is pretty intense. It's- yeah, no, I, I think he, he's told me that story, I think. <laughs> Great. About it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's hop back to Chopper. Chopper. What were you doing before Chopper? The only thing I could find listed was a crowded house music video, so I was just wondering. Yeah, I did, I did, I, I did, um, yeah, I did music videos and I did commercials, um, that's what I did. I mean, film school, I made a couple of films, you know, um, short films uh, that sort of showed my potential, I guess. You know what I mean? People were making a living making music videos, so I decided I'd try and do that, you know, and I did that for a while. And then uh, eventually you try to get into commercials because they pay you more money, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then really what you want to do is you want to make a film, so... What drew, drew you to the project? I know you adapted the screenplay yourself. The book. Yeah. It was the book. It was, it was the book. It seemed like something that could get made. You know, there was a, it was like, like a mass market paperback that was around at the time and a bunch of people read it. It was really funny. You know, the book was hilarious. 
And it just seemed like, okay, it, it was a bunch of sort of shaggy dog stories from the, um, I mean, what it actually found out later was that all really famous stories from the criminal underworld um, that Mark had sort of appropriated and put himself in the middle of, you know. Right. I mean, some of it's obviously his life. I mean, a lot of it is, but there's also his, his you know, it, it, it was still a good story. And how was it meeting him? Did you feel safe around him? Well, I didn't meet Mark for years, mate. I mean, right. Um, I tried to meet him immediately, and I, I think it was because he was in maximum security. And I think there's something from his point of view that was a bit humiliating about being in that situation, you know, and talking to swearheads, you know. I mean, I, I tried to get him to sort of collaborate with me, but he was his attitude was one of like. Um, he said to me, I don't, I'm not interested in how I see myself. I want to know how somebody else sees me. That's what he said. Interesting. So I took him at his, I took him at his word and I started actually researching his life, which was very different to his books. You know, there was uh, a period of his life that had been documented by the internal services unit of the Australian police because he'd accused two policemen of police corruption of like providing him with the umbrella arrangement. Right. So as a result of this, they did a massive investigation on this six-month period where Mark was out of jail, and it was the Sammy the Turk period where he, where he shoots the guy outside the nightclub. And the stack of pages was as tall as I was. Some guy had it in his garage, and it just described everything he did every day, you know, and mm-hmm. it would have – they spoke to everyone who was there. You get a lot of conflicting accounts. And his behavior was just insane, you know, shooting a guy, taking him to the hospital – you know, there was all this shit that he was doing that didn't seem to make sense. And I realized that if I wanted to make this movie, I had to make emotional sense of what he was doing. And the story became a lot more, the film became a lot more interesting once I did that. And I guess from his books, you just had the sort of fire, the verbal fireworks, you know. So when I met Mark, which would have been after I'd been on the thing for at least five years, five or six years, something, um, but that was when it actually really took shape because it was something about sitting in the room with the guy, seeing how emotional he was. You know, Mark had big feelings, you know, mm-hmm. um, and when he was in the group of them, you know, you know, he was, he was in the group of them. I mean, I met him in jail, right? So, yeah. you know, there's no danger and Mark, um, you know, the people that Mark hurt was it was like natural causes, mate. You know, you know what I mean? Like it's natural to the line of work they're in. Mm-hmm. He doesn't hurt squareheads. You know, he doesn't <laughs> hurt civilians, um, pedestrians, which is what I was. You know, I mean, I was just some cafe latte, you know, wanker guy. <laughs> you know, from like middle class squareheadness. You know. But but there was something about him that was scary, definitely. Um, I mean, I've met a lot of killers, um, a lot. I've met three or four killers in my life, you know. Um, Mark is the most impetuous and impulsive of them and the most emotional. And he was scary from that point of view. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the others were... Uh, you know, Billy Longley was a businessman. He killed people for for reasons. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I got a, a friend who's a Navy SEAL, killed hundred people. You know, mm-hmm. 
you know, I mean, it's not it's not criminal murder, right? But it's still killing people, you know. And how was it putting that into the script? Because he's got that really strange balance of menace and comedy, and really, as you said, really strange reactions or responses after an act of violence. Well, that's Mark, I and mean, that's that's what he's like. So it was pretty natural to put it in. It was what was exciting about it. Like I remember seeing it for the first time with an audience and that stabs Keith George in the face and then apologizes to him, strikes yes. him the cigarette. And you, you could really feel the the bottom drop out of the room, you know, in the theater. It was like the audience didn't know what they were looking at at that point. And I thought, okay, this really works, you know. Like they were destabilized. And how was it casting Eric? Didn't um didn't Mark suggest Eric originally? He did, yes, he did, he did. Um, it was a relief to find Eric. I mean, he must have been looking for somebody for like years by that point. It was a couple of years. You know, there were actors who were good, but they weren't Mark. Or there were actors who weren't funny, you know. Or, you know, it was just really hard to find the right person. And uh, Eric's exactly like Mark. Yeah. You know. Uh, now, now Mark saw him on TV and was just like, get that guy. And I just thought he was joking. Like, but the producer got the casting agent to get him come in, Eric, and he had something. He was a bit big, you know what I mean? But he, he, was, he was still, and he did something that none of the other people did. You know, like obviously he looked at Mark and he sort of studied him um, and what he was doing was great. It was just a little bit like comedy, you know, and um, – you know, I went down and spent a day with him because he hadn't done much in the way of acting, acting. He's done a lot of, um, you know, uh, he, was, he, he impersonated people. That was his shtick, you know. And, you know, by the end of the day, it was obvious that this was the guy. But it wasn't going to be easy to sell it, to sell him because he was sort of unknown, you know, or um, it didn't sound like a good idea. Because he was a was he a TV comedy actor at the time, or was he doing stand up as well? He was in a sketch comedy show. Right. He was a stand up originally. He was stand up, I think, and he, he was in a sketch comedy show, sort of like Australia's version of Saturday Night Live. Right. Wow. What a knockout performance. Yeah. And how did you come to get the look of a film? I I love that the first thirty minutes of the prison sequence. You've got that almost um um. Uh, acid green type of texture to the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, H Division was actually really calm. You know, it was like the polar bear cage in the zoo. Right. And there's these weird skylights and you get this weird sort of underwater light in there and like a submarine or something, like between a submarine and the polar bear cage, you know. And I remember walking in there and seeing it going, fuck, this is what it looks like. I was really disappointed. But, you know, like, than going with it because he felt safe in jail, you know, obviously. Um, jail was home. Uh, and then the outside world was just, the idea was to make it just garish and overwhelming and too colourful and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, we looked at it. It was a bit, it was a little bit candy. So we gave it a bleach bypass at the, at the, um, the Interpols or the internet or something like that. And that just sort of tied it all together. And how was it? You, t- you guys took a break during the film, didn't you? Was that for Eric? to pile on some weight. Yeah, so Eric could put on weight. How was that for you as a first-time director with... Um... Fucking great, mate. 
Love to take a break. Love to take a break every four weeks. Did it feel like you were coming back to two movies, or did you kind of was your head still in the same zone? No, I mean I was cutting a I cut a few things in the break. You know, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of production problems to deal with. Uh, in the break, I mean it wasn't a break. It wasn't a break like it was a break for Eric. You know, yeah, just going to eat donuts and drink beer. But you know, it's never a break for the director. I mean, four weeks out. In fact, maybe it's even worse. You know, the last two weeks of pre-production are the most insane uh, of your life. You know, like when your bat's going to, and you can't wait to start shooting so you can go to sleep again. Right. Because they'll let you sleep when you shoot. But like the last two weeks of pre, fucking hell, dude. No sleep, you know, not at all. It's crazy. So, you, you know, I, th- I, think I, I think I had a few days and then it was just back to work. How did you feel making your first film? What was your biggest challenge you came across? Well, it was scary. You know, um, because you're failing 90% of the time. Um, you only need to succeed 10% of the time, you know, but you don't know that. Um, biggest challenge. I mean, uh, it was just sort of holding the line, you know, like the first week I shot best and worst stuff, some of the best and worst stuff that I did, like half the film, half of what I did looked like a carry-on movie and the other half was like, I don't know, some Melville-looking film, you know? Mm. It was great. And, and it was really emotional. It was really intense. And and I, I realized at that point that I just had to hold out, for, just not stop shooting until it was good and stop trying to be a responsible director. Just, you know, get everything done on time and efficiently. I mean, you do. It is the job and you always make your day. But, but it, it was just a different attitude um, of like, holding out yeah and if something was bad i'd change i'd change it you know because there's a certain momentum that happens on a film um you realize that you block something after you badly after you've been shooting for two hours you know and then you undo the blocking and start all over again people get very nervous you know Mm -hmm. about that sort of thing um but i just started doing it you know I mean, I'm a, a very different director now than I was back then. Have you got a big lesson you learned from your first film that you took on to your next film, which was absolutely huge? I, I don't I don't know that you actually can always, what works on one film works on another. Right. You know, um, but I don't have some standard methodology. I'm always trying to do something new or, you know, develop it a bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the Nick Cave, the Nick, Nick Cave films taught me a lot. Of just like, I mean, the idea of just turning up and winging a movie, you know, yeah. you got to shoot a movie in 10 days and you don't know what it's about. You know, this, you know, at some point you're going to have to deal with Arthur being dead, you know, um, yeah. and ha- how are you going to get to it, you know? And, but you just, you've got no time to think. You've just got to do it on instinct. And what I was amazed by was how it worked, how, how good my instincts were. And now what I do is I push the crew a lot. 
so that they're not, they don't have time to think about what they're doing. It's amazing how the focus pull is often better if you just throw them in, like don't give them any rehearsal. Um, their instincts come, come kicking in. So I sort of believe in that. I believe in a bit of difficulty. And how was it going into Jesse James? That's such a huge, epic movie for a second film. Um, it was terrifying again, you know, yeah. um, until, until, until it gets exhausting. It's what, all movies are the same. They're just kind of like scary and then you get tired, <laughs> you know. Um, but having said that, uh, I've lost a lot of the fear that I used to have. You know, I, I sort of started to realize that, um, you know, what you're doing with the film is you're always trying to make it live. You're trying to make it live. You're trying mm-hmm. to believe what you're looking at. You're trying to create something. Something has to happen for you to photograph it. You know? And so you, you, you just got to make something happen. And I've got a, you know, a bunch of tricks about how to do that. Or I don't know. You're either embalming a movie or it's coming to life. Oh, that's a great line. Yeah. It, you know, you know, like, and when you're embalming, it's like fucking hell, mate. It's the worst. And you've got to stop embalming and you've got to bring it back to life somehow. I rewatched The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And you probably spoke about this before, but Jesus Christ, man, that train sequence is so spectacular. I know Roger Deakins says it's one of the best things he's ever shot. Can you talk about that? How long did it take to put together? It's just absolutely a stunning piece of filmmaking. That entire section is just wow. I, I, I think we shot it over four or five days. Probably five days. I think there was six and we had to cut a day up. But, um, it was probably two days outside and two days inside on the last day. Uh, but, you know, that one was all worked out. And how about Blonde? I'm so excited for your new movie. Me too. It's the movie I've most wanted to make. Oh, really? Has this been a passion project in the wings? Oh my god! I've been trying to make. I've been trying to make it since two thousand and eight. And what is it about her story that has kept you obsessing over it? It's a, it's a movie for all the unloved children of the world. That's your tagline, right there. It's it's like uh, it's like Citizen Kane and Raging Bull had a baby daughter. And finally, what's next? What are you? Have you got anything else in the works? Oh, mate, I'm just uh, I'm laying on the couch as I'm talking to you here. Yeah. I've, just, I've just spent the last two years in the cutting room. I've got two movies coming out this year. Uh, and Chopper's getting re-released, right, a little bit in, in, yeah. in England. It got re-released a little bit in Australia. Isn't that enough of, enough of an output for the minute? Oh, yeah, no, that's a well-deserved break. I, I'm just a <laughs> huge fan of your work, so I'm always like, give me more. Yeah, no, I, I, no, no. I mean, listen, I've got something I'd like to do. It's a bit of a tricky right situation. Mm-hmm. I, wa- I want to do a war movie. I want to do a war movie. What war do you want to set it in? Afghanistan. But, you know, Blonde is, bl- Blonde is good because it's different to the other movies. You know what I mean? I mean, it's the same in a way uh, in that we're seeing the world, you know, through her... Uh, her eyes you know we're seeing them we're seeing the world through the lens of her childhood drama you know yeah um but it's about a girl there's no guns in it and finally what were the movies that got you wanting to make movies can you pick out something that was the light bulb moment for you 
Yeah, I mean, the first movie I ever saw was The Wizard of Oz, The Flying Monkeys, and I mean, I wanted to be a filmmaker from pretty young, and I think what I really liked was like Planet of the Apes movies and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. And then I sort of, and then I sort of found Polanski and Ingmar Bergman when I was in my like 14, 13, somewhere around there, Kurosawa, you know, and I started to see, okay, there's better movies, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I remember seeing Raging Bull when I was like 20 years old or, and just being like, oh my fucking God. Like I didn't realize movies could be that good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like as good as that movie. Um, but by then I was already a filmmaker, you know, I was already at film school. Um, you know, all the, all just the standard ones, you know? Yeah. Standard good movies. Yeah. I mean, I've got my sort of bastard favorites, you know, like, like I love Marnie. Um, I love, um, uh, Night of the Hunter, you know, of the old Hollywood. I love Hitchcock. You know, I love I love women's pictures from the forties. You know, yeah. Criterion Channel just added a big batch of Hitchcock, so I've been going through those. I forgot how dark Rope was. Rope is crazily evil. Yeah, they have Marnie. Yeah, that's on my to do list. Yesterday, I did I redid Rare Window, which I still think is my favorite because it's just a yeah, yeah. movie about watching movies. So um. Nah, nah, Marnie, mate, and Vertigo. Okay, uh, I'll do that tomorrow night. Well, you know, I mean, it's his personal obsession, right? Yeah. I mean, you know what it's about, right? She's a frigid kleptomaniac, right? And he is going to cure her so that she will love him, right? And fuck. it's starring Hitchcock's dream girl, Tippi Hedren, who is desperate to fuck, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And everyone hated the film. It's so full of feeling, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and and the film was a, a complete disaster, and but it's fantastic. And Sean Connery is fantastic in it, like so good, so charming. Um, yeah, mate, you, I envy you. You can watch Marnie for the first time. Yeah, you've sold it to me. That sounds incredible. I don't know how I've managed to miss that one. I've just been doing all the. Well, it's 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 not well thought of, right? You know what I mean? It's not well thought of. And you know Hitchcock gets pretty interesting once once he gets into um, you know Freud. Yes. You know and his his first foray into it, you know the the one with the Dali Dream sequence is not very good, right? But once once it starts coming in in like in a plot sense, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. once he's sort of taken the Freudian dynamics um, and turning them into movie plots like Vertigo and um, Marnie and stuff like that. I mean Vertigo is amazing, dude. Like, yeah. I've done I'm, that. Yeah. I'm gonna turn. I'm gonna turn you into my fantasy. I mean, fuck! What a movie! And I did the one. What's the one where the guy comes to town? Who's the, when the killer comes to town? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I know. I know what you mean. Um, that over doubt. Yes. Yeah. Joseph Cotton. Yeah. Fantastic. People are filthy pigs, and you yeah. know, like, yeah, it's pretty good. Cool. I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate you taking the time. No worries, mate. I'm a huge fan of your movies. Good luck with Blonde and make the war movie. Take it easy.
boom. Me and Andrew Dominic. That guy's a fucking character. Everyone go watch Marnie now. That's it from me. Thank you to my podcast engineer, Ewan Henselwood, Joshua Eustace, aka Telephon Tel Aviv, for the beautiful music. You guys for listening. I'll speak to you soon.